I don't know if I told you yet, but I have a book that recently came out called Manifesting with Purpose, and it hit international bestseller only days after being released on Amazon. I've co-authored it with three other amazing coaches and women entrepreneurs, and it's all about sharing our personal stories and practical tools to help you align with your soul's desire. It is possible to live your most fulfilled life. For more information on the book, follow the link in the show notes of this episode. Let's say if you live in an island by yourself with no other humans, you will not have the sense of self and identity that you have currently being surrounded by people that you are surrounded by because how you see you always unfolds in the context. That's exactly the reason that people are always concerned naturally external validation because the context creates individuality. Welcome to the Empower From Within podcast presented to you by Trezal. I'm your host, Jessica West, founder of Trezal, creative entrepreneur and author. Every week on the show, I share an empowering message or interview an incredible individual to help you discover the limitless power you have within yourself to reach for your greatest desires and create the life that's truly worth living on your terms. Self-empowerment begins now. Hi there, and welcome back to the podcast. I'm excited to share today's interview with you, where I talked with Yuki Yoshi, a former professional dancer turned into a soul purpose coach and author. He recently launched his book, Soul Purpose Insights, a manual for creating a life of freedom. In his young adulthood, Yuki began connecting the dots between body, mind, spirit, and personal development work, and created a framework to help others holistically achieve self-realization and fulfillment. Yuki works with those that have a deep want to help awaken the world, and he helps guide them to finding their unique soul purpose. We go really deep into identity, ego, and fear in this episode, and I really hope that you enjoy it. So without any further ado, let's dive in. Hello, Yuki, and welcome to the podcast. I'm so happy to have you here today. I'm really so excited to dive into our conversation. I know it's going to be so great because you have such a way of really speaking to the soul when you talk. And I'm really so excited to hear what you have to share. And I think it holds true to what you like to call yourself a messenger for the soul. And that's really, really what you are. And we can feel that when you're speaking. And so I am so looking forward to getting into our conversation. Um, I want to talk about your book that you just recently released, which is Soul Purpose Insights, a manual for creating a life of freedom that actually took you nine years. It was nine years in the making. So I really want to hit on that point too. And, and maybe you can share with us what that journey was like, but something that I do with every interview that I do, because I really feel like telling a story is so powerful. And I feel like this material that you're getting into and teaching people to really find their purpose they're often, to be able to dive into this material, there are often moments that happen that really trigger something within you that maybe you thought, wait a second, there has to be something more to life. And that's what got you to dive into exploring yourself and exploring your spiritual side. And so can you share what that moment or moments was like for you? Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me in. And that was perfect because I think 
I identify myself as a guide and a messenger to help people, you know, awaken uh, the spiritual essence. But, you know, when you ask me that question, I think it comes down to two moments. And the first one was when I was living in South America, Peru. And I was living there from age two to 11. So, you know, that was almost like the first country that I was, I became aware of because I don't remember anything before the age of two, right? Uh, although I was born in Tokyo and the moment I sort of realized I was in this environment called Peru, which is a developing country in when I was, I think it was age five, four or five years old, um, I had this dream that in the dream, I was in the plane and the plane that I was in was about to crash. Yeah. And I saw that dream three days in a row. And wow. at that early, yeah, at that early age. So basically that dream made me aware of this concept of death. Yeah. Which is. An idea that five years old normally, you know, don't contemplate, even when people get to adult, you know, that's sort of like a foreign, but I had that in a really early stage. And then I remember myself going to my mother's bed crying. And when you start becoming aware of that idea, you start shifting the way you see life and you start questioning. Yeah. And then more living more from the existential standpoint. So I had that at the very early age and then you know just like many people i did not have this vehicle like you know people i feel like when i observe the world people who are connecting with what they feel certain that it's their gift they thrive right because that's the alignment and i don't think i had that until i discovered dance at the age of 16. So, you know, I was in Peru living and then I went back to Tokyo at the age of 11. And I, just like any um, male teenager, I was exposed to different sports, right? Basketball, soccer, and I had many injuries. But then until I discovered dance, it felt like I was just doing because others were doing. Uh, I was doing because it was available at school, but not because I felt called to pursue if that makes sense. Like in the break, mm -hmm. you know, during the school, people just gather and play or they have clubs and all that. But yeah, a friend of mine took me to a train station. You know, in Japan, train is the main mode of transportation, not too much of the car. And there are people, street dancers, right? Street dancers practice at the uh, train station and I was invited to there. And then that sort of hooked me. And then just like, a common story where the friend who invited me discontinued dancing and then the one who got invited which was me continued to dance and that became my first career but about the same age i started to explore spirituality by coming across a book and if i want if i go into a detail though i open a wisdom book during my break uh in my part-time job and it was somebody from Japanese author, right? And I can't remember, but it was like a poetry, but it was a spiritual poetry 
And when I read that, I felt so home where I felt like somebody is writing what I have been always feeling inside. So my parents are artists, yeah. And then I was, I think I was raised by a very unique parents where they were very, very not typical. Uh, in Japanese parents, they, they often uh, tell their kids to study and go to school and it's pretty strict, right? But my parents were artists and they just told me, do whatever I want to do. And it's kind of like, if you get told, do whatever you want to do at that age, you kind of, you know, kind of wants to have a direction, but I needed to be the one who set that direction. And that kind of came naturally by coming across that book. And then I started to go to a bookstore that took me to a bookstore that I never, it's not like I never been, but I never felt like that was the place that I, I belonged to. And then the very first book after that, that I read was James Redfield, uh, Celestine Prophecy. I don't know if you know that book. I've heard of it. Yeah. Yeah. And then right next to that book was Neil Donald Walsh's Conversation with God. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Powerful. So, yeah. Yeah. I read Neil's Conversation with God. I see, I, I look at him as a first, my first teacher, a spiritual teacher, because I read his first conversation with God book when he just published. And then I was waiting for the next one, next one to come. So I read conversation with God in number two, number three, and then he published friendship with God, number one, number two, and then all the after uh, books that he published. So I would say those two moments, yeah, the dream that I had at the age of five and around 16 and 17, when I came across those book and Neil's book, when I dove in, but like throughout those like childhood, teenage um, moments, I had always this feeling that there's more than the visible world. I knew it. It wasn't a belief, but I knew it. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I could totally relate with uh, Neil Donald Walsh. I believe I, I have read his book, Conversation with God. I think that's from him. And I knew right away because I study A Course in Miracles and I knew just by the way that he was writing, I'm like, this guy knows A Course in Miracles too. And sure enough, I looked it up and yeah, he had studied the course too. Like, it's amazing. So I'm going to recommend it to you if you haven't uh, dived into it yet, because it's really so life-changing and the content is just amazing. So that's incredible. And I think a lot of us could relate to just knowing that there's something more, but then we're just stuck into this habitual pattern, which we're going to get into later on too, of just living out our daily activities and just going and ignoring that kind of call that we have. But before we get into that, I want to get into when you decided to start writing a book and when you got that idea, when you started to put all of your your findings into a book and talk about why it took you nine years to publish it. <laughs> when, where did you, did you, did you hear me saying nine years in one of my, like a live that I did? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, um, let's see, uh, in 2005, so I was a dancer professionally in Tokyo and that took me to Los Angeles. And then I had a, like a bulging disc stuff. So, uh, I threw my back during audition and I kind of knew that that wasn't the path that I should continue. 
So that kind of shifted my career to teaching movement like Pilates and yoga, right? Um, but then because of that spiritual interest, I always felt like, hmm, you're moving the body is something that I really like and enjoy and comes naturally. But I was more interested in the mind and the spiritual aspect, right? The, the, the part of that that we cannot see. And this is even when I was in Japan, like I was reading things related to holistic stuff, holistic health or transpersonal psychology, which is, you know, a, sort of like a beyond the conventional uh, psychology. And I always knew, Jessica, that when I was reading those books, even when I was like a teenager and I was dancing, like I, I always knew that this is the path that I am going. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then back then, there wasn't too much terminology such as coaching, right? Right. But sort of like helping people wake up. That's all I kind of had in my mind. <laughs> helping people wake up with this material is what I'm here to do. And you just know it, right? You just mm -hmm. know because it almost felt like my body and my cells inside of my body was made of that. That was craving. And it was that there was an urge for that. So I was in Los Angeles, you know, teaching stuff. But then I wanted to pursue finally something related to the mind. And then I just Google search holistic health. <laughs> holistic health and then I found a university uh, graduate school because I already had a bachelor's degree in Tokyo in holistic health education and then they're like I think I heard that there's like a six or seven holistic base uh, graduate program in the entire United States and then four or five of them are in San Francisco yeah okay yeah. wow so I kind of relocated like I google search in April and in that same year September I already moved to San Francisco and I started my path of graduate school in holistic health education that was 2010 I enter my graduate school in holistic health education and that's a university that I study experientially consciousness and the mind and there's a term called somatic psychology where like a body-oriented psychology. And when I enter that graduate program, Jessica, I, I'm a practical person. Like I want tangible stuff. So I sort of made a decision that I wanted to write a book using the final paper of each class that I take. So at the time I graduate, I have a book. So basically using those, you know, school years, I wrote a book little by little by little. And I have a book at the end, but then I didn't publish it because the reason that I didn't publish it, I had it already on 2013, which is nine years ago, right? But I didn't publish it because my awareness and understanding was growing and expanding every single month, if not every single week. So I was in this feeling that, oh, if I do that right now, I'm not able to add what I'm gonna find out next week. <laughs> and then that kept going for about six years. And the book that I wrote nine years ago was a little bit more academic because you know it was the 
combination of the final paper that I wrote for a graduate uh, program. And then three years ago, I decided to edit to a more shorter version and a compacted version because I wanted to write a book for people to read, not for people to have in their shelf, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I don't know if you can relate with this, that, but a lot of people have books, a lot of books that they have not read for the whole thing, right? So mm -hmm. at least I want people to read the entire thing. And as, as you know, right, we are, we're, we're in a business in the space of studying ourselves, right? So not to gather information, but to read that multiple times to become aware of ourselves. So I wanted to write a book that gives people an opportunity to embody the essence, which I made it shorter and accessible for people to read as much as they want to. But I wanted to combine stories and a little bit of the quantum science and a little bit of the practicality, which I made it so, a three different segment. So three years ago, I edited, and then it was held in my computer another three years because of the same reason, because I wanted to, can I, can I release it right now? I'm going to find out something next week. And then I just, you know, said uh, last month, I'm just going to publish it. And I'm going to, if I, if I come up with the next one, I'm going to write the second one. That's how I changed mm -hmm. it. Yeah. yeah, that'll be great. I. I love that you said that and that you wrote it. Honestly, when when we're reading it, it's like we're going through a graduate program <laughs> that's been toned down in simple language that we can really understand and relate to. So that's amazing. And I, I really wanted you to share your story because I think it's such an important part that so many of us feel that we don't do things because we're not ready yet. And there's always more things to tweak because we are expanding. And I feel like when you really get into personal development, like you said, you can start changing by week, by day, even by hour, like you, the expansion doesn't stop. And that can really keep you kind of where you are because you're too scared to put it out there because, oh no, what if that's not right? I got to change that. I got to change that. And it's just so important. Just put it out there. You are never going to be ready. You just got to put it out there and then you're going to grow. This is what this whole journey is about. It's about growing and through that putting things out there and then you're going to learn from it and so a huge point thank you for sharing that and I think this would pivot well into maybe let's talk about some of the reasons why people stop and prevent themselves from just putting it out there from just doing the thing they want to do they stop themselves and in their book in your book I should say you talk about two fundamental problems that every one of us has. One of them is living life on autopilot and following, you know, just getting into our day-to-day -day habits. And the second one is fear. And that is so huge. Um, and there's so much to talk about on that, but maybe to start, can you, can you share, like, what do you think is the main reason why people feel held back and like they can't put their work out there? They can't say what they want, but they're kind of you know, waiting for the moment that is never going to come because that moment is now and you have to create it for yourself. Yeah. So I can think of two things immediately, Jessica. What you just said, fear and habit are the essential uh, reasons, but I think those two are always uh, integrated 
means that people in a habitual fearful mode. And then when I say fear, I'm not referring to this idea of, oh, I'm very afraid of something. I'm more referring to this idea of sort of feeling resistant in doing something different, right? It could be very subtle, right? Because many people in a motivational space talk about comfort zone or getting out of comfort zone. I like to use the term uh, familiarity, like familiar self, right? So because the identity that we are living every single day is for most people, oh, this is huge. What I'm, gonna, what I'm gonna about to say is really huge. The identity that people are living for most people depends on their memory, right? So their past experience until now, and they remember something about them, you know, the feeling that they got, their external uh, judgment, which is only another internal judgment about thinking about something else, right? But the past, present, memory-based identity is sort of like a cage for a lot of people. And then they're, they don't know, most people are not aware that they're in that cage. So they feel comfortable living in the memory and there is an invisible resistance, which I call fear, but many people might not be aware that that is fear. Yeah, because it's the subconscious level. And they have a desire of wanting to do something, but because their familiar past, present, memory-based identity feels familiar and comfortable being in a certain place, they cannot go out of that space. And in the subconscious, it's much, much stronger, right? And another segment of that, Jessica, is I think this also kind of falls into a subconscious aspect where so many people, and I think, I mean, actually, I'm talking about this in my book where many people are concerned with external validation, meaning many people are living day-to-day -day life and they're words and the emotions and behavior are driven for most people by how they would be seen by others in their mind. So that's the nature of building identity. I don't know if you remember that I wrote in uh, one of my other uh, chapters where identity is always constructed through relationship. Mm -hmm. So yeah. And then that sometimes puzzle people what it means, right? Because we look at the visible physical world. So when two people come together, one plus one equal two. So people think that two individuals together form a relationship. That's not how it works in psychology, in people's mind. You cannot, you cannot create and come up with how you see yourself, identify yourself without context. I don't know if you want to go into the universal law of relativity, but Neil also talks about, right? This physical world is the realm of the relative. So it's a contextual field. So like for instance, you know, black and white, you can see white because black exists and vice versa, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Shorter hair is shorter compared to the longer hair that you have. So 
the identity of how we see ourselves in our mind, the unfoldment of individual identity can only be emerged through the context and relationship. So the example that I often give to explain this is, let's say if you live in an island by yourself with no other humans, you will not have the sense of self and identity that you have currently being surrounded by people that you are surrounded by because how you see you always unfolds in the context. So that's because that's exactly the reason that people are always concerned naturally external validation because the context creates individuality. And then I think I'm using the term that I uh, got from my mentor. We are not individual, but we are always intervisual. The individuality emerges within the context. So from the human standpoint, from the animal human standpoint, making sure that I am safe, being seen by others people from the lens of love, is human nature, the protective mechanism, human nature. That's why most people are stuck there because people are not aware of that. And that is at the subconscious level. So your question was why people are not able to, you know, take action and get it done right away. That's because subconsciously that is, you know, holding people within, let's just call invisible cage that people might not be aware of. But the beauty is that when we start becoming aware of our mind and the sense of self is only in our imagination, um, we can bypass that and transcend that. And that's what the book talks about. I love that you just referred to this point because it's actually a sentence that I highlighted in the book when you're talking about individuality and Correct me if I'm wrong, but it was something like individuality. We think that it stems from just us as a sole person, but it actually stems from our relationships with others. And to me, that was like a, whoa, light bulbs, aha moment. So I, I'm so glad that you just chose to share that with us. Yeah, that's exactly, that's exactly it. And that's the reason if you are not seeing that and living, becoming aware of that, we get stuck in sort of wanting to please the outside mode. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, I'm also so happy that, uh, and it's funny, I, I'm laughing on the inside right now because when you explained fear and you're saying, you know, when you refer to fear, you're not talking about like being physically afraid of something. And I was actually going to talk to you about that because that was another aha moment that I had when I was reading your book. I'm like, whoa. Fear isn't just, oh my gosh, I, I, I fear, I'm fearful for my life. I'm fearful of getting hurt. It's actually, I'm fearful that I'm going to lose my identity. Now, I wasn't going to bring that up out of fear that it was obvious. I'm like, oh, I'm not going to say that because I should know it. <laughs> so it's just an example of how the fear comes up. And like, it's so good that you shared that. Uh, but it is I our identity. And it's just, even when we're trying to get out of that, that comfort zone or some mindset coaches call it like the terror barrier. We have to overcome it. It's really 
we're just turning into a new identity and we're afraid of that because that means that we got to shed our old identity and that means the death of our current ego identity yeah you just used a term that i was going to use uh, right now the death of ego is very fearful and scary for people you know most people the, the strongest addiction that people have is the addiction to their self and even like for instance it's this is very interesting that when i found out about this idea and then when i started to sort of observe this it was so fascinating like for instance a lot of people no nobody wants to be angry right and nobody wants to be frustrated nobody wants to choose to be in the disempowering and negative thoughts or emotions yeah but nevertheless those who don't want those go there frequently and why do they go there because they're addicted to that emotion because as much as many people don't want to feel angry by feeling angry they can feel like somebody and that somebody is the energy that they have been feeling that's familiar so when you don't feel that it's the death of the ego and our identity slash ego is afraid of losing that so we are constantly because we're addicted to that emotion that we are accustomed to we're looking for constantly looking for ways to be triggered in the outside to confirm that emotion that people don't want to feel but subconsciously they're married to that emotion because that feels like familiar self that they have been living that's not like a blind for a lot of people like people wants to change their you know internal state a lot of people uh come to me saying that they want peace they want calmness all that but they get triggered in the same situation over and over because subconsciously they're craving the subconscious craving that feeling to feel like the person they have been so i call that addiction to the self yeah that's so powerful and i think even if we were to to talk from like a strict chemical or biological standpoint, when you're angry or anything that you feel, it's firing chemicals in the brain and you can get addicted to those chemicals. And so you're always trying to look for something to be angry about. Even if it's nothing, there's nothing to be angry about in that moment. You're craving that chemical. And so you're just going to find something to nitpick about. And it's just a continuous cycle. Can we talk about so I believe that there are, and I've said this before on the podcast, that there are two things in the world, fear and love, or we could say love and lack of love, but for this context, let's say fear. And you have studied stress and people's stress response and everything. So what does fear have to do with stress? Um, I see it as like, it's fundamental, like the stress stems from the fear but can you share with us the relation with fear and the stress that people, you know, were, I mean, I think stress is on the high rise nowadays. And so how is that all rooted in fear? Yeah. I love that question. Stress is rooted in fear. Absolutely. Uh, I would say stress. It's very interesting though, because stress 
everybody understands what stress means, but the experience of, experience of stress is very unique and very different in each person, right? Sometimes people have this sort of nervousness, right? Depending on that person's personality and the values and beliefs that they have, stress is a unique experience for each one of us. But when we use the term stress, everybody understands what they what we mean in their own term, right? So stress is a biological activity inside of us that is telling us that we are experiencing a certain psychological threat, danger. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's what I call stress. And psychological is the key, right? So there is there are physical dangers, right? Like a fire next to, or like for instance, like the beginning of the year where I live, uh, they're having heavy rain, right? And even the freeway, it's floated. I have never seen freeway floated with water. Right? Oh, wow. Yeah, it's, it's unusual. That can be a physical danger, but then psychological threat kind of goes hand in hand with the physical, right? But I'm more referring to the psychological threat where you start thinking about, feeling about, creating emotions that comes from fear and you start creating different emotions like anxiety, anger, frustration, nervousness, depending on you know what the person's uh, value is. And I think when we look at from a spiritual point of view, this is one, one thing that I'm talking in my book where I enter the graduate studies with the clear intention that I wanted to study what stress is, but I Inside of me, I knew that the stress was already a symptom, not only a cause of a lot of the degenerative disease, but it's a symptom when we look at when we look at from a spiritual point of view. And it is always a disconnect, lack of connection with or the fullness of the oneness or the spiritual plane. And I, you know, at, at this point, Jessica. I have come to this sort of place where, you know, I look at every negative situation as just they are, right? If you don't look at the negative, which is a perception, right? The adversity and challenges that we experience in the 3D physical world, when we don't look at from a spiritual point of view, people get disempowered, right? people's emotion and thoughts get dictated by what they see and how they perceive. But when we look at everything from a spiritual point of view, everything just are, right? So, and then when you experience something like that, negativity, or when we experience something physiologically disempowering, it's just life informing us that we are disconnected from the creator. And the embodiment and living that is for me a true spiritual practice, moment to moment. Not going up in the mountain, but on a day-to-day -day manner, recognizing and becoming aware of that is the juice of this mm -hmm. practice. 
It's so powerful. It's almost like giving you feedback, feedback, yeah. telling you that, Hey, you're not connected right now. You're, you're losing the connection. Yes. I want to mention something. It, it just came up to me as you were speaking. And so um, this is, I just want to get a general sense of your idea. So when you're, when you're saying you're talking about symptoms and that got me thinking, if it's only love and fear, then even like, would anger be a symptom of the fear that you're feeling? Because I think of like, you know, a mother and, and the child didn't come home past their curfew, right? And so the mom's going to be upset and angry with the child by when it when he or she comes home, but really it's rooted in the fear of not knowing where your child is, not knowing whether they're safe, not knowing whether you're going to see them again. And so it's that fear and worry that you have, and then you're angry when they, when they get in, but it's rooted in fear. And so anything, any negative emotion, I see it as if we really hone in and get the self-awareness to really realize like, what is going on with me? What is the root problem? I believe it is fear, but, but that's it. That's all it is. What do you think about that? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I love that example that you gave because I think something that I want to be clear here is that the outside event and the inside experience are two different things, right? So mm -hmm. sort of interesting that you, what you said, because when I was sort of running a self-transformation workshop long time ago, I said the stress is the cause of stress is inside, right? I mentioned that, you know, the source the source of stress is never the outside but the inside. And then someone raised the hand, right? And then she said, What do you mean by the source of stress is always inside? Like how can I how can I not be stressed when my child is not doing good in school? Right? That is stressing me out. Just like what you said right now, right? That mm -hmm. the children doesn't come home, right? And I said, Well, you stressing out about that fact will not help your child, isn't it, right? So the child not doing good in school is an event and it's a fact and we can, let's use the term respond or see that in a certain way. Like stressing out and feeling angry or feeling frustrated will only make that whole energetic situation worse and stuck. So if the mother has a desire for the kids to do good, it's better if the mother stays calm and to respond to that situation in a way, choosing the perception that leads the child to do better. And that disempower angry or stress is coming from the thoughts the feeling that the mother is creating, not from the child. So I think that's also a key. How can people able to discern the outside event and the inside experience? And stress, yes, is also always coming from the fear inside that is being created through the imagination, thinking about the worst case scenario that doesn't even exist in the outside world, or recalling the memory and repeating something that happened in the past and projecting towards future again, creating that imagination. So it's inside thing. Mm -hmm. 
Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, just as this podcast says, like empower from within, I'm a firm believer. Everything begins within. In your book, you mentioned a couple things. So you made, you know, there's a common quote out there um, and everybody knows it. Everybody will nod in approval and say, yes, yes, that's true. Thoughts lead to actions. Actions lead to results. And everyone's like, yes. And then also another common quote by Earl Nightingale, we become what we think about. Everybody loves it, but nobody actually does anything about it. Nobody actually applies it to their life. What do you think the reason for that is? Do you think it's again, because we're addicted to these negative feelings? Yeah. I'm loving your questions, Jessica. <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> no. So your question is why nobody does it, right? Mm -hmm. Different ways that we can answer, but the answer that's coming up so strongly right now is because people in general are identifying themselves as their mind. So, you know, I often talk about you're, you're a spiritual being and living in the physical body and gifted with intellect. What that means is that who we are is not the mind. That's why we say our mind, my mind. And, you know, that ultimate essential part of us is not our body. That's why we call my, our body, right? We don't own anything. We are temporarily borrowing our body and the mind. So the mind is what thinks. The mind is what feels. The mind is what believes. And what the mind is what creates emotions. So people are thinking on a day-to-day -day basis in an automatic manner and their identity is people are assuming that they are the identity identity is something that's fluid that we can create a uh, change whenever we want to but until we sort of step back a little bit and able to look at and be able to observe and notice our thoughts and in the inner body experience we kind of got get trapped into this sort of assumption that i am the mind i'm thinking and the thought is me and then if you are inside of your thoughts, of course, the attention becomes outside to change because you don't feel like you can change. You know, you know when, when listen to those quotes like Nightingale, you know, we become what we think about, change your thoughts, choose your thoughts. But we can change that only when we are able to observe it, right? If we're not observing, we're being absorbed by it. So most people are absorbed by their thinking or absorbed by their belief. So they're inside of it. And I think I come to this sort of realization that you can only change when we step out of that dimension of the mind. And I don't think many people are there just yet. Mm -hmm. I love that you're saying that. And it's actually something that's been coming up within me over the past couple of days, because I'm very adamant, you can choose your thoughts. And so if you're having limiting thoughts, like, why are you choosing to believe in those? But then I'm beginning to think, well, wait a second, our society, you know, the news, TV, the community, everything that we're surrounded by, it's almost like it has this like hypnotized. And when you're in that kind of hypnotic state, how can you get out of it when you don't even recognize that you're in it? So I am starting to realize now that, oh, whoa, whoa, there's, there's a big fundamental piece that needs to happen 
before you can actually become aware that like, hey, I can actually choose something different. Uh, yeah, so I, I'm really enjoying this this conversation. So you can know, you? I want to oh, yeah, go ahead. Um, I think what I have found over the years in observing clients and people that I work with, um, you know, there's a law of rhythm, right? Go up and down, up and down. There, there, nothing is at the high all the time, right? Season changes. And it's very interesting because like a weather, affect, weather affects people's mood, right? And like a COVID affected people's emotions, right? So I think there is an invisible energy that goes up and down, up and down a little bit where people feel a little bit tired, people feel a little bit uh, less empowered, right? And like, for instance, when somebody's not feeling well physically, right? Um, it's difficult, it's a little bit more challenging for them to feel empowered, right? I know I have seen people who uh, have like injury and shaping their personality. So pain can shape their personality. So I think it's also important to be able to observe those rhythm and then cultivate an inner awareness to not to decide to go to this empowered state and deciding that this is the case when that is happening. Does that make sense? Meaning mm -hmm. when something is not going well, often, people's energy gets absorbed by it and they sort of go into this rabbit hole of being feeling disempowered feeling disempowered but i found that because of, something that i uh, practice for myself and then share with people is this idea of deep before the leap so everything goes up and down up and down and when things are going down like like for instance myself i threw my back on the christmas day right so I was Ouch, Merry Christmas. Yeah, that was a, that was a <laughs> gift that I got for Christmas. But I I truly can see that it's a gift. You know, most people the way that I interpret is that oh, it's just awful. Why am I getting this on Christmas, right? But I have this I have developed this awareness, Jessica, where something painful or unexpected perceived negativity appears in my life. I'm not paying attention to that you know momentarily you feel the pain right but you get back on right away and my attention was on okay is this a sign that the leap is about to come and my energy is was already on that so this is a muscle that we need to kind of develop like it took me a little bit a while for me too where things are not going the way that you want to how to navigate and almost surrender into it, expecting the expansion and the opening of the door to come. So that would be another layer that I, I kind of want to add because I, I, I see many people stuck in there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love it. And, and, and I've shared that before too, that's something that I adopted a mindset after my injury and after my motor vehicle accident and you know, spending three years in recovery, but something that really helped me is just having the mindset that what I'm going through right now, I'm going to be able to help others in the future. And I feel like having that release just allows that healing that much quicker because you're not focusing on it. You're focusing on the bigger picture and the impact that you're going to be able to make 
after this. And you're almost like, it's almost like a sense of gratitude for what is happening that you get to go through it so that, you know, you're going to be able to learn so much more and grow and become a better version of you tomorrow. So I love that you shared that. Can you tell us and share with everyone, maybe a few steps that people can implement today in their life to turn their disempowering thoughts into empowering thoughts? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think I want to share the steps that I use to shift emotions, right? So nothing can be changed until you notice. So the first step, let's say if somebody is feeling disempowered, the first step is to notice that emotion. Because just like I said a moment ago, if you're not observing, you're being absorbed by it. So by observing it, you are kind of stepping outside of that disempowering feeling, right? And then that's step one. Step two is to realize that you're not that emotion. That's why you are out of it, right? You're not the emotion, but you can kind of step out of it. And then what I often um, talk to people is that those disempowered emotions are habitual. So people are familiar with it, right? But you can call that as a third person or actually give a name to it. So whenever that comes up, you say, oh, he or she is coming up again. The moment you start help calling that person third person, it's easier for us to disconnect from it, right? Then you're observing and becoming aware of it. So you're not the mind in that emotion. And then I think it's important to realize the law of cause and effect, right? The cause is the inside, the effect is the outside. So once you disconnect from that, you go into this place of, okay, what is it that I, I want to feel instead? What is it that I want to feel instead? And what we want is always the opposite of what we don't want. So, you know, this is going to be depending on the person. So you can write down or identify that emotion and then go to this imagery of what is the, the, the any of the memory that you have experienced this particular emotion. You go there hiking or listen to music, whatever. So you practice disassociate from that disempowered emotion and move into that empowered state. And the more we repeat that, the more that becomes a normal state. And then we want to practice this uh, when the actual thing is not happening. Just like, you know, practicing yoga or practicing, you know, exercising. Because when we are actually facing a certain situation, um, it's sort of, difficult for most people but once that ends and when the next disempowerment hasn't arrived yet you can kind of practice a little bit when it's a little bit more feeling neutral so they don't get absorbed too much and the more mm -hmm. people repeat that you get absorbed less and less and less and little by little you can shift out of that so i would say noticing and then detach from it and then select the opposite one and then you start visualizing that and making that as your practice. Visualization and shifting emotion requires practice. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, absolutely. That's that's powerful because yeah, when you're right in the middle of it, it's that habit that comes up and the habit is in the subconscious and it's just like 
reaction. That's just what it does. And so it's really hard to stop it in its tracks. I really love everything that you said, especially like disassociating with it. And I think that's so important, even for, for symptoms, it's not, don't identify with your symptoms. It is not you. It's your body trying to tell you something, but you don't have to embody it. And I think when people embody it, I'm sick, I'm in pain. I'm, you know, we, we attribute it to ourselves and we start to identify with it. And that's when we can really get caught in that cycle. I love everything that you shared, Yuki, like this was so good, like so much value for me and for all of the listeners. It's really so, so powerful. Can you tell everybody where they can find your book and where they can find you if they want to know more? Yeah. So the two main places that I'm around is Instagram and Facebook. So it's my full name, Yuki, Y-U-K-I. Last name is Y-O-S-H-I-I. And I have a Facebook group called Soul Purpose Group. Soul Purpose Group. Um, and if people want to get the book. So I am working on the paperback and the audiobook soon. Uh, but right now, I only have the ebook that I'm uh, published uh, on my own. So that's under the link satori-mindset.com. So that's satori-mindset.com slash soul purpose insight with the S at the end. Okay, yeah. great. And I'll be adding all of the links in the show notes of this episode. So yeah. be sure to check them out. And that's amazing. Really get your hands on a copy of Yuki's book because it's really so powerful. And you have something added in there too, where it can actually be personalized where people could put their own name, which I think it yeah. is great too. Yeah. I'm enjoying okay. putting every single person's name actually. And I'm enjoying people messaging me, telling me which chapter they are reading right now. Yeah. It's really, it's really incredible. And it's really an embodiment of, of growth and really finding that sole purpose with which I think so many of us are craving today. So thank you so much for being here today, Yuki, and sharing all of your value with us. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me, Jessica. Just wow. I had so many aha moments on that call. It was absolutely incredible. I would love to hear your takeaways. So if you feel called, please leave a review and let me know of any aha moments you had. Here are today's self-empowerment takeaways. One, just do it. You know that thing you've been wanting to do or that business you've been wanting to start or that book you've been wanting to publish but haven't because you don't yet feel ready? Here's the thing. You're never going to be 100% ready because you're always evolving and nothing is ever going to be perfect. Besides, let's be honest, perfection is so boring. So just do it already. Two, regularly tweak your identity. Remember what Yuki said, your identity depends on your memory meaning it stems from the past, but you aren't your past. And so it's false in nature. Those thoughts that you have about not being good enough, well, they're based off of a memory from a past event. And that's it. The past holds no weight on your future and your possibilities are endless. Three, starve the ego, feed the soul. <laughs> I just, I had to include that bumper sticker saying in here somewhere. And I see it all the time, but really, do we even actually know what it means? <laughs> it means that things are going to get pretty uncomfortable in here. Starving the ego means the death of your current identity. And it can be scary to step out of your comfort zone, but it's a necessary step to becoming the fuller expression of yourself. Four, develop self-awareness. 
Become an active observer of your thoughts and make the necessary changes to any kind of limiting thinking that's preventing you from living your best life. Five, change your disempowering thoughts into empowering thoughts. Here's a quick summary of the four steps that Yuki gave us. One, observe your thoughts. Two, realize you aren't your emotions and you can disassociate your emotions. You can try calling it something else or creating a story, looking at your emotions in the third person. Three, once you've disassociated with your emotions, ask yourself, what is it that I want to feel instead? Four, visualize the way you want to feel and feel that way now. You can find all links in the show notes of this episode. Thank you for being here. I hope you got just as much value out of today's episode as I did. If you feel called, please share this episode with someone who you feel would benefit from the conversations we had. It's going to help us reach more people. And this is one way that we can all help empower each other from the inside out.